It's Thursday, March 17th, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight, we go back to February 27th, 2022. Uh, and I, the host of the Hermetic Hour, was the call-in guest of Masonic Brothers at the Fort Worth, Texas Masonic Lodge's weekly podcast. Now, Polk was interviewed by the Master, Worshipful Brother Gabriel, who was very knowledgeable on esoteric subjects and asked me some very provocative questions. We covered everything from my childhood through spearfishing, scuba diving, special forces, novel and screenwriting, and the illness that got me into magic through self-hypnosis, and on into anthropology while doing the Golden Dawn on witchcraft and writing my master's thesis on magic, after which I did the entire Masonic program. Master Gabriel asked me, after all these other, other traditions, how did masonry affect you? And I said, I'll be honest with you, I told him, I thought these those muggles couldn't show me anything, but they totally blew me away. The third degree was awesome. I realized that I had been hit with the full force of a 300-year-old egregore. That was it. That's a collective spirit. Master Gabriel came in at that point for a fuller and more philosophical explanation of the term. We continued discussing magic, the nature of spirits, the golden dawn, astrology, Kabbalah, and even reincarnation. All in all, it was a very enjoyable hour and a half with a lot of very stimulating conversation. I'll be responsible for what I said, and nothing I said reflects official Masonic teachings or doctrine. Thanks to Brothers Billy and Worshipful Brother Gabriel for letting us rebroadcast it. Welcome to Fort Worth 148's podcast, where we meet to discuss Masonic topics and strive to build value in the Brotherhood. The opinions and statements of the participants do not represent any positions or stance of any Grand Lodge or Lodge, and are solely the viewpoints of the participants. Welcome, listeners, to the Fort Worth 148 Masonic Podcast, and thank you very much for uh, joining us again. My name is Gabe Yagish, and I am the Worshipful Master of Fort Worth Lodge. I am Billy Hamilton. I am the I am a past master and the current Tyler for Fort Worth 148. And we have a special guest today. I'm Polk Runyon, and I am a member of uh, Culver City Fauché Lodge. Blue Lodge, and also a member of Los Angeles Scottish Rite, and KCCH and Scottish Rite, and I'm also the master of the Order of the Temple of Astarte, which is a Kratorapoa magical order, uh, sponsored by the Church of the Hermetic Sciences, of which I am the president, and I'm also an officer in the Golden Dawn, and that's the temple that's here in Los Angeles, and I have some other interesting affiliations and accomplishments. I'm, I'm a member of a Tibetan Tantric uh, Yoga Order and also a member of Feriferia, the nature goddess-worshipping religion. I also produce video documentaries and have produced some science, a science fiction movie. And, uh, and I'm considered to be a kind of a 
expert on the on the esoteric, and of course, the esoteric side of masonry is the hot topic these days, and and so that's why I'm here. Yeah, during uh during our pre-recording uh, talk, you described yourself as a uh, quote bit of an esoteric item. So we're really glad to have you on the show. Um, as our, our our listeners are familiar with the format, we'll start off with some. Uh, individual Masonic questions. So, uh, Poke, could you tell us a uh, well? Actually, we'll start with a non-Masonic question. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, outside of the Masonic and esoteric lens? Who is Poke Runyon as uh, as an as an individual outside of all of these orders and outside of all of this mystical nature? I describe myself. As a gentleman of the old school, and which a gentleman of the old school is one who recites classic poetry to heartless beauties while wrestling alligators. <laughs> and and it, I am what my uncle described as a bear for adventure. Adventure's been my thing ever since I was a kid. I grew up on Edgar Rice Burroughs, on the Tarzan books and the Mars books and all. I wanted to be an adventure writer. And one of the things I found out about all my adventure writer heroes, like Edgar Rice Burroughs and all, they they were all adventurers themselves. So I decided that's what I was going to be. I was going to be an adventurer. So I I became a a scuba diver, and I was out shooting barracuda and sharks and and a spear fisherman and and a diver. And my eyes weren't good enough to be a fighter pilot, so I became a paratrooper and went through special forces and. Uh, ended up being a captain in the Special Forces Reserve. Founded my own A team, and I, and then I went down to to Belize, British Honduras, and and went diving and hunting down there. And then I've I've been over to the Bahamas, you know, looking for treasure. And and I've done all kinds of things. If it's exciting and dangerous, then I'm going to do it. I'm probably one of the oldest the oldest ninjas to ever to get a a green belt ninjutsu, and uh, I did that when I was 65 because I'm just a, a, as I said, I'm a bearer for adventure. I published my first novels when I got out of the Army, when I got out of active duty. I jumped Cuba, and that was the first Andy Castro novel ever published, and then the sequel, Commando X, which I'm going to republish both of those pretty shortly, and they'll be available. Then after that, I you know I went out to Hollywood and tried to, and tried screenwriting. It was almost successful, but then and I got ill. I got ill. But what it, what it really was was an atrophied gallbladder that was of mine that was turning to stone because of too much of my mother's bacon grease. <laughs> anyway, that gallbladder was going out on me, and I tried to hypnotize myself. I thought, you know, if you got if, if you got an ulcer, and they they misdiagnosed it as an ulcer, and I tried to hypnotize myself to get rid of this ulcer, and it really was an atrophied gallbladder, and it was killing me. So I hypnotized myself, and I couldn't continue my my screenwriting career at all with this this thing. So, and I didn't manage to keep the pain down, but at least when they finally diagnosed it properly. I was able to keep the, the inflammation down enough to let them operate on the darn thing. And it, they cut this gallbladder out of me that was as big as a fist, and it was solid stone. They had to chip it apart. But in the course of, of all this, this self-hypnosis, I got very, very deep 
into tantric yoga, and I discovered a secret of ceremonial magic in the process. So after I recovered, I became one of the very, very few ceremonial magicians who could actually summon spirits to visible appearance, teach people how to do it. And so I, I founded the Order of the Temple of Astarte and the Church of the Hermetic Sciences back in 1969, and we've been going ever since. And the church is the corporation, and, and, and the Order of the Temple of Astarte is the lodge. And we've been going ever since, and, and we published the definitive book, the Book of Solomon's Magic. And, of course, you know, that is related to masonry because of the Masonic Solomon legend. And according to one version of the legend, Solomon got the jinn to build the temple for it. That's not the Masonic version, but that, that is a, a magical version of the Solomon legend. And so the Solomon legend has a Masonic connection, obviously. So we've been going... Ever since 1969, we've been initiating people. We use the Kratorapoa system, and that's a European system. It was German scholars put together an Alexandrian, first century Alexandrian initiation. And they came out with this about the same time as the Illuminati. In fact, the Illuminati got the, their owl, the, the, you know, the owl symbol of the Illuminati. They got that from the Kratorapoa. I recently asked if we could have it back, and they told me, that. they said, oh, sure, sure, you can have it back. And so so we took it back from them. But anyway, I got into masonry after I got my master's degree in anthropology. I joined the masonry and I went through York Rite and Scottish Rite and, of course, Blue Lodge. And then after that, I went into Tibetan Tantric Buddhism, and I was fortunate enough to study under some really, really really good Tibetan gurus. And so I was able to combine what I learned from the Tibetans with our Western system. And this enabled me to really advance as, as far as magic is concerned. That gives you a pretty good idea of who I am and what I've done and, and whatever. There was a lot there to unpack. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, going back to, uh, I, I grew up reading the John Carter of Mars novels. So like <laughs> when you, I definitely perked up when you said that because you're right. Though that that kind of lays the groundwork for a, a desire for adventure when you're still young. Um, mm -hmm. The question I had was, uh, um, I was wondering, did you become a Mason before you became before your interest in um, in ritual magic, or was it the other way around? Were you a ritual? Other way. It was the other. It was the other way around. Masonry was on my list of things to do. And the first thing I had to do was get a master's degree in anthropology. I figured I had to do that. And one of the reasons why I figured I had to do that is even though I had this shamanic experience with the with the, with the gallbladder, you know, and, and all of that, you know, there were so many, I hate to be critical, but that's the truth. There were so many phony gurus uh, around at that time. And I knew I had something, and I, I knew I had something genuine, I knew I had something real, I knew I had something worthwhile, and I thought, I've got to back this up. Mm. So I went back to school on the GI Bill, and I, got, and I got my master's degree in cultural anthropology. And boy, that was a wonderful experience, because I was able to go on National Geographic expeditions and you know, do all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. 
and it was really wonderful education. And in fact, my wife told me I was I was thinking about psychology, you know. And my my wife told me, "Good, good Lord, no! Those people are all nuts, folks. You need anthropology. That's your thing." And she was right, because I'd much rather be Indiana Jones than uh, than some kooky guru, you know. And so after I got my master's degree, then. I knew I had to do masonry because masonry was so much a part of the Western esoteric heritage was was wrapped up with masonry. Uh, so I knew I had to do that. So I did. I I did Blue Lodge and, and York Rite and Scottish Rite. I gave up York Rite for the same reason that a lot of people do, because I couldn't handle all three, you know, paying all three of them those uh, things. So I switched, you know, I switched my interest over to Scottish Rite. And then... You know, I had to do the I had to do the Tibetan thing, and I was very, very fortunate to be able to do that. But masonry was first on my list after after getting my master's. Now, when you say that masonry was the first thing on your list after getting your master's, was that some uh, was that an interest that was developed during the course of achieving your master's in anthropology, or oh, yes. was that? Okay, so that was not a pre-existing desire. That's something you developed I, you, in your you studies. If, if you're studying, if you're studying magic, and my thesis was—I um, don't think they have a copy of it anymore. They've all been stolen. But, but my thesis was the rise of neo-pagan cults and, and magic in Southern California. If you're going to study magic and you're going to study esoteric cults, anthropology is—that's your thing. Uh, magic is is all anthropology. Well, a magician is essentially a shaman, and magic is shamanism. Anthropologists study shamanism. <laughs> they don't study Western shamanism like I do. They should, but they don't. The media doesn't treat us very well, and neither, do, neither does academia. They study hermeticism and all, but, but they don't appreciate any kind of practice. Now, in, in your course of study... Uh, in what context was masonry presented? Was it presented as kind of like a, uh, you know, a Western initiatory practice or, uh, you know, that was like a coming of age kind of thing? Was it presented more as a magical practice? Because obviously everyone has kind of their own view of what masonry is. Uh, but what was, I guess my question is, how were they teaching masonry when you were studying when I was studying it, uh, I got my MA from California State University in Northridge. I did enough work for a PhD, but the state universities don't give PhDs, they just give masters. Masonry is considered, in the books we read and the lectures we got, it's considered a, a, a in the area of a rite of passage. And it's also considered as a kind of a tribal thing, you know. They look at masonry as, as a sort of a social structure. Academia does not consider masonry magical. They consider it to be uh, in the, in, kind of in the, in the area of a cult. Secret societies are considered to be uh, in the same area as a cult. A cult is defined as a organization that follows the teachings of a charismatic leader. That is the definition of a cult. But then when, once the charismatic leader dies, it becomes a sect. I did my thesis on the theme of revivalist movements and uh, 
revivalist movements are are kind of religious re- reassurgence of, of cultural religious uh, uh, movements. And and I, as I recall, I think I think Bob Elwood considered masonry to be to be somewhat of a revivalist. Not not exactly a revivalist movement, but in the kind of in that category, the category of a uh, a cultural phenomenon. I, I think, generally speaking, they were not critical of masonry, and yet, at the same time, I can't speak for academia much later than than 1980 because that's when I got my master's and that's when I left them. Generally speaking, anthropology tends to be somewhat uh, somewhat left wing, but uh, it, you know, as far as its philosophies are concerned, I think that when the when the feminists started to assert themselves, that's when maybe academia academia, you know, in, in deference to the feminists, they may have be, they may have become somewhat anti masonic in that direction. But that's later. That's after. I can't I can't speak for anything after after 1980. I really can't answer the question. Right on. That makes sense. Um, so then, so with them teaching uh, Freemasonry as being a rite of passage or maybe a tribal thing or maybe even approaching it from a cultic perspective, um, one of the things that you said you were pursuing was uh, magical organizations and magical knowledge. Um, what was it about Freemasonry that kind of uh, called out to you as being an avenue that you wanted to pursue within this larger pursuit of uh, the magical traditions? The best way I can answer that question is with an impression. I thought I had received, but before I before I was initiated in the, in the yeah, my Blue Lodge initiations for 1981, I had been initiated into the Golden Dawn, I'd been initiated into Feriferia, I'd been initiated, I had been initiated into uh, a very shamanic form of Celtic witchcraft. I, I had received a number of initiations, and I, and, and, and I thought, uh, be honest with you, I thought, what the heck can a bunch of businessmen do that, that could be more impressive or or better than than what I've already received. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I thought. My Blue Lodge initiations at Woodland Hills absolutely blew me away. I thought I'd read Duncan, you know, and I I thought I knew everything that was going to happen. I thought, well, oh, there's nothing these guys that can do that can impress me. But they, it, literally, they 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 were they did they, they just blew me away. And what I realized when that happened. I realized that I had been hit by what is we refer to in magic as an egregore. You know what an egregore is? Uh, yeah, the living spirit of a collective of people organized for a purpose. Basically, absolutely right. And that's what hit me. And and here are these here are these 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 businessmen, these used car salesmen, these these <laughs> these these regular guys. You know. <laughs> And it just—it literally blew me away. They, especially the, especially the third degree. I it was hit with this this 300-year-old egregore, boom, you know, and uh, and that's what masonry's got. And hope to God we never, and hope to God, God and goddess, we never lose it. We never want to lose that egregore 
never do it. Ever want to distort it? We never want to. We we, we never want to lose it. And, and this is what's so important about the Blue Lodge is is that the Blue Lodge carries this 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 egregore for these those three degrees. That's a precious treasure, and that in itself is important to magic. And frankly, I don't think any male magician has his training complete unless he at least gets through the Blue Lodge. I think he has to. That's a really strong statement, and I like it. Um, for our listeners, I briefly summarized the concept of an egregore um, when Poke asked, but uh, kind of a, to put a uh, to pause for a second and explain it for our listeners, uh, the egregore or a egregore um, is kind of it's a magical concept that uh, when a group of people get together. They can create what's called a thought form, and uh, they can create an, uh, depending on your view, it can be an energy or a spirit. Some people might, you know, uh, our younger listeners might even call it a vibe, um, but it's a very specific sort of thing that kind of lives on its own. And if you've ever thought of, you know, if you've ever walked into uh, uh, a lodge and, and you know you click with the people in that lodge. You might say that you were able to participate in their egregore, things like that. Um, but loosely speaking, an egregore is a spirit or um, the energy of a group of people that have been collected for a certain purpose. And so that's kind of the more detailed dive into it. Now, Poke, with all these magical orders and, and all the experiences that you've had, how would you say that you feel the Masonic egregore differs from other kinds of egregore? Well, that's a good question. It differs in the sense that it has more tradition behind it because, you know, even the Golden Dawn struggled and tried to create the same kind of an egregore that, that that masonry has, but of course, most of the, almost all the founders of the Golden Dawn and most of the members were were masons. They were trying to create a an, an egregore that would have would have the same power, but I don't think they succeeded. I'm very fond of the Golden Dawn. I think it's a dinosaur in some ways, but then another, but then in other respects, it's done some wonderful things. I, I ought to discuss some of the, the great things that the Golden Dawn has done, but they tried to create a, a similar egregore to masonry, but I don't think they've succeeded. And it's still going, you know, and it's still going. I think there's a Golden Dawn temple in every major city in the in the United States, and uh, and they're certainly worthwhile. And I and I encourage every uh, every magician and every mason who wants to be a magician is certainly certainly go through the golden dawn part of your education but they don't have they don't have that force that egregore somehow or other masonry succeeded in being able to to plug in a kind of a universal it becomes a universal thought form it's like the universal mind it's a creature all to itself it uh, a vast colony animal that has has its own soul uh, and this is what of course the Golden Dawn was trying to do, uh, but I don't think they've succeeded. But masonry 
is the core of the Golden Dawn, of course. It, let's not get into the OTO because uh, their connection with masonry is is, uh, is something I, I, don't, I don't want to deal with tonight at all. And uh, I think you know there are good reasons for that, good reasons for avoiding that. But what you said about the egregore, the important thing that, I, that you didn't emphasize is Masonic egregore extends back to the 1700s. It's almost like another dimension. And this is why understanding the history of Masonry is important and why every Masonic scholar has, has, has a copy of Mackey's uh, encyclopedia on his, on his shelf, you know. The history of Masonry is so vast, and Masonry is its own dimension. It's like another, another universe, it's another world. The, and the egregore extends all the way back to all the way back to Scotland, you know, and, and, and the Grand Lodge in England, and all that crazy stuff that the Europeans did. So, what more can we say? Indeed. Um, wow, that is that's a lot. I love it. Um, uh, I think th- this was a question I thought of uh, a little bit earlier when uh, you were talking about your 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 path to uh, magical practice and and whatnot. Um, but something I just thought of was, uh, what, what was your journey? You know, you mentioned that you had the issues with your gallbladder and, um, how it, you know, it calcified essentially, uh, and that you had been working on trying to heal yourself with self self hypnosis. Uh, what was the thought process or the journey that took you from, uh, self-hypnosis to the Western magical tradition. The most important thing about self-hypnosis, and I, all of my students, I, I train all my students in self-hypnosis to train them how to do it. And the very important thing for magic, self-hypnosis is good for a lot of things besides magic. It's good to, you know, to, uh, to quit smoking, to lose weight, to, you know, to take charge of yourself. It's a, uh, it, it, it has a lot of advantages, but what, one of the main things that self-hypnosis helps in magic is in channeling spirits. I'm going to say something right now that a lot of people listening are probably not going to want to hear. The spirits, so-called demons and so-called and, and, and angels, demons, and spirits, exist in your mind. They exist in your mind. They, they, they dwell in you. And when you visualize them, when you see them, when you hear them, they are speaking to you from your mind. And, and of course, hermetic, hermetic philosophy teaches us that our minds encompass the whole universe. In fact, we take all of the old, the old planets, you know, the, the you know, the ending in Saturn, all of those old planets are inside ourselves. And the whole universe, the zodiac, every everything, the whole universe is inside you. You access it all. And I know this sounds bizarre, but uh, I have a I have a colleague who, who says who who likes to say, It's all in your head, but you have no idea how big your head is and 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 he and he's right because it is. And we're connected. The universal mind is connected, just like this. This egregore of masonry is 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 a 
kind of a universal mind in itself. It's a dimension. Now, the important thing about self-hypnosis is that you talk to yourself. You, your conscious mind talks to your subconscious mind. And it treats the subconscious mind as a separate entity, as a separate person. You talk to, to your subconscious mind and you refer to your subconscious mind. You talk to it as you. You, you, you say you, uh, you address it as you, but you are addressing yourself as, as yourself. So yourself is split. Your conscious mind talks to your subconscious mind. And your subconscious, and then if your subconscious mind disagrees or your subconscious mind wants to express itself, it takes over your voice and it answers you. Now, this is a phenomenon that all, everybody that gets into self-hypnosis is aware of this. You can ask, ask yourself a question and you will answer the question. You know, and you say, are you feeling well? Yes, I'm feeling well, you know. This is the key, one of the keys, to manifesting spirits. <laughs> in other words, when you're scrying on a crystal ball and sitting around the altar looking at the crystal ball, when the angel finally arrives, the crystal ball lights up and you get and you get a kind of a green and golden aura around the ball. And then if I'm leading, let's let's say I'm leading the circle. I will ask one of the people sitting around the altar, I'll say, frat or so-and-so, uh, does the angel speak through you? And if he is sufficiently in trance, and then he'll start speaking, the voice of the angel will, will, will come out of him. He can only do that if he has trained himself in self-hypnosis. And that is vitally important for channeling. And, you know, I, of course, I'm giving you a lesson in magic right now. One of the keys is self-hypnosis. I was going to say, within the realm of uh, psychotherapy, there's the concept of the id, the ego, and the superego. Is this kind of a similar concept? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, in fact, in hermetic magic, we're primarily yogian. But Freudian concepts do apply. Jung once said, he said, well, Freud works works up up." put people up into their 30s and then and then when they get to be 40 years old I take over <laughs> well actually both Freudian and Jungian psychology and psychological principles apply all the way from you know from teenage from teenage ever uh, well from puberty all the way all the way through all the way through to to middle age and older but I I've often referred to to ceremonial magic Solomon's to Solomon's magic as a medieval form of psychology. It is a form of psychology because the spirits teach lessons. They teach things. They they have knowledge, and the angels, the angels have wisdom. I, I learned that by the way from an angel. <laughs> you know, uh, he uh, they, 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 the counter the counterpart of Baal is, is Bahuya, and and Bahuya says, "Well, you want to understand the Shemihan Farash and." and and the Goetia, and and uh, he says that the the, the Goetic spirits they have they have the knowledge, and we the Shemi Hamfarash we have the wisdom. They have the art, and we have the power, and that's that's a pretty good way to look at it, you know. And according to the to, to our way of looking at it, uh, that's how Solomon built the temple, for controlling the the creative the creative spirits with the power of the. Uh, of the angels. 
So you've mentioned uh, the concept uh, a couple times now, and I feel like it's probably now is a good time to start diving in. What is uh, Solomonic magic? Solomonic magic is primarily derived from a grimoire referred to as the Goetia. And this comes out of a compendium of several grimoires that are termed Solomonic. That is referred to as the, uh, the, the, the compendium is called the Lamegaton. And uh, I have a book on this, by the way, that sells rather well, uh, called The Book of Solomon's Magic. Mm-hmm. And you can get it on Amazon, and you can also get it from at uh, pokerunion.com, you know. But the Book of Solomon's Magic, and I have a and I have a video showing how to do it. it. Solomon was considered to be by the Arabians, by the Hebrews, he was considered to be the master magician. Solomon had a had a magic ring. Now, British novelist Jonathan Stroud has a book out. Uh, one of his Bart- Bartimaeus series. He has a demon Bartimaeus he writes novels about. Kind of big, he's kind of a spinoff on Harry Potter. Uh, and he had, don't get the idea of Solomon's magic from uh, Jonathan Stroud's Solomon's Ring. Because oh. I'm halfway through the book now, and I know that I can't recommend it at all. The Goetia, called The Lesser Key of Solomon, is, that's the first book in the Lamegaton. That has a, a series of 72 spirits. That's all the way around the, the Zodiac twice. And those 72 spirits are, well, it, it, calling them evil is really, they, they, they're not all evil. Some of, the, some, of them, some of them have pretty nasty habits, but the spirits, as I say, they all teach something. All of them in, 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 in the Galatia. They all do. And then their semi-hamphorized counterpart angel, one of the magicians that we, we follow, Franz Barton, he, he gave all the semi-hamphorized angels, had them teaching and, and sort of supervising the same stuff. Uh, and, that's a, and that's pretty valid. So you want to work both of them together. When you, when you, work, when you work these, uh, uh, these so-called demons in, in, in the Goetia, you've you got to work the semi-hamphorized angels along with them, you know. Uh, because that way, uh, you're, you know, you're you're kind of keeping them under control. But Solomon was supposed to be the master of the of the jinn, according to the Arabian Nights, and they said he had this ring, uh, this ring that he, uh, this magic ring, that uh, actually he got it he got it from the Queen of Sheba, and and she she was half half jinn anyway, uh, she was kind of a half breed half. Uh, half in the magical dimension with the chin and the half in the human dimension with, uh, you know, the Queen of Shiva is the patron, uh, the patron saint of the alchemists and then in the Middle Ages. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. So also for, well, any of your, for any of our listeners that are wondering, the, uh, I guess, historical or religious context for Solomon being a master of the jinn and uh, being a spellcaster and a magician, uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can read the 34th chapter of the Quran, uh, which is actually titled Shiva or Sava. <laughs> if, you, if you don't mind me bringing it up, because uh, 
you know, for some of our listeners that may be newer to the, you know, to the concept of, of the Champagne Parisian, uh, you know, the Goetia, and, you know, bringing this back to what we were talking about earlier with self-hypnosis actually gives you, you know, that's when you're talking to the angels and the demons that you're kind of accessing your own uh, subconscious, right, in, in your own, uh, I guess, the inner aspects of yourself. And I, I guess for those who may not be familiar with the concept, I mean, we're, that's what we're still talking about here, right? It, it's kind of unlocking the, the hidden potential within yourself through these uh, conversations, you know, through like Asmodeus and, you know, would that be an accurate description? Yes. And, you know, this is a big problem that, that, uh, well, I have this problem because so many writers, so many writers on magic, and there are a lot, there are a lot of them, and there's a lot of magic books out there. They don't want to admit that these spirits live within yourself and come, and they, they don't want to admit that. Uh, Hermit, Hermetic philosophy tells, says it over and over and over again, and and a lot of these people, they they they, they say they're hermetic, but they uh, but they've never read they've never read the hermetic treatises. They they haven't read the Pomander, they haven't read the Asclepius. They 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 don't they don't know what it is. They they think they believe. Right. And Hermes said he said that the gods of the zodiac are eternal. But man creates the gods of the earth sphere. And Hermes also said that you can go anywhere in the universe uh, at the speed of thought. There are so many things about hermetic philosophy that 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 the that the, the these these writers that write these magic books don't understand. They think that these that these spirits, uh, these hermetic spirits and all, live in some other dimension. Like one of my colleagues described it as as a, as a whole as a planet as a planet of rocky uh, a rocky planet with a, with very little air and a lot of caves and all these demons are like gargoyles and they all they all live in these in these caves on this on this in this in this dimension of of caverns and 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 uh, jagged rocks and whatever and. If you want them, if you want your spirits to be that way, I suppose they will be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you really want them to be, if you want them to be nasty and you want them to be like gargoyles, we've got a big gargoyle I, that I bring out on Halloween. Great big gargoyle, and I'm looking at him right now. He's sitting over on top of my book, above one of my bookcases, and I thought about taking him down to the temple putting the triangle down flat on the floor, putting this gargoyle in the middle of the darn thing, taking a picture of it and sending it to one of the, my friends that, that believes this sort of thing and say, look, buddy, we got one of your critters. What do you want us to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Crowley made the mistake of saying that the, the spirits of the Goetia are portions of the human brain. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. The brain is hardware. The spirits are in software. The mind is the software. The brain is the hardware. Crowley didn't didn't care for Jung. He never got into Jung. The spirits are in the in the Jungian dimension. They're in the mind, yeah. They're they're in the mind because the mind extends to the whole universe. Right. 
So consequently, these spirits can't have a separate identity. They do. And they kind of have a collective identity because I've got a little bit of, uh, we've all got a little thing in our mind, a little niche somewhere in the mind that that, that is reserved for one of these goetic spirits. And like one of my one of my friends, Lon Duquette, says, he says, we all come hardwired with 12 six-packs of goetia spirits. <laughs> and, yeah, you, so you got this little niche in there where, where they live, and you know they may not they may not be that strong in there, but once you activate them, they'll come in from somewhere else, you know, and 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 fill up that niche for you. I'm not saying that these spirits don't have an independent identity. They they may very well have, but they still come through you. They come through your mind. Your mind is the receiver, and you have to realize that. And by the way, I've done exorcisms, and I have to say this. But as far as magic is concerned and magicians and people who who work with this, this sort of thing, mm-hmm. there is no such thing as demonic possession. What there is is demonic obsession. So when we do an exorcism, it's because a person has an, has an obsession with a spirit, not, not a possession. The dual possession, they do it in, 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 in voodoo. They, they, do, they do possessions, you know. They just tell my horse, you know, they did dance and dance and dance and dance and dance and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and dance and drink and dance. And, and then finally, the, the spirit takes over. That could be termed a possession. But the, after the drums stop and after the and after the, the, the rum wears off, then the, the, that, the possession is over. That makes sense because, uh, you know, I mean, even if you look at the, the old Christian texts where they talk about the seven deadly sins, each one is governed by an archdemon, you know, and uh, in a way, it would seem almost like, you know, possession is the emulation or maybe even a loss of control for that specific domain, I guess, if you would, uh, which I guess could be seen as, you know, if, if you're conquering that particular entity for lack of a better word you're actually attacking that you know trying to regain control over that portion of yourself that that own part of yourself that has gone out of control yeah but this this obsession that is a problem with goetia because goetic spirits once you know how to conjure them they are very gregarious they really really you know stroud in his demon stories, he, he says that Stroud, with his Bartimaeus stories, oh, the demons don't want, they don't want to be summoned. That's painful for them. They don't want it. They, they hate to be summoned. They hate magicians. They don't like you at all. This guy knows nothing about practical magic. Poetic hmm. spirits are the most gregarious metaphysical creatures that in the universe. They're so happy when you call them up. I mean, they, oh, you know, where have you been? I, I've been, I've been waiting for you. Yeah, they love to help you, but unfortunately, they, they can be so friendly, you can become too friendly with them, and that's the obsession, and you get obsessed with them, and they want you to build a little shrine for them, and they want you to feed them, and they want you to, yeah, they, they, uh, so you, they, they can be a problem in that regard. That's why I say it is possession is not the problem. It's obsession. So now I have a, a 
clarifying question here. And so for context, you know, um, I think some of the listeners already know this, but, you know, for the purposes of our conversation, I'm kind of coming at this from a very bog standard uh, Episcopalian uh, perspective, right? So love this conversation. I am also a little bit out of my depth, but the question I have is when you say that the spirits are within you, and that, that you know you're the receiver. Are, are we talking about the spirits are a manifestation of you know your human impulses and your subconscious thoughts, or are we talking about so like an internally generated sort of thing, or are we talking about the spirits as like uh, external beings um, that also sometimes reside in somebody's mind? Because uh, that's that's something I'm not super clear on. Well, that of course, this whole situation uh, with the you know with the uh, the spirits residing within us or being in it, we can call them forth. You kind of have to imagine them as being separate, and this is one of the reasons why people don't want to hear this. They automatically want to want to imagine them as being separate from their minds, being separate from their, uh, you know, uh, they want to imagine that. And therefore you, you try to explain that it's, it, that it's in their minds. They don't want to hear it. And yet at the same time, our mind can expand and does expand to the limits of the universe almost, or at least to the limits of the hermetic universe. And let's, let's be honest about it that the Hermetic universe really doesn't extend much further out than Saturn, because that that was as far as the eye could see before we developed telescopes. And so the Hermetic universe doesn't extend. It extends out to Saturn, and then beyond that is the Zodiac. And so, of course, it extends to the Zodiac, and then naturally beyond the Zodiac is the Empyrean plane. That's heaven or whatever you want to call it. We're going to have to imagine these spirits inhabiting all the planets out to Saturn and in fact well we've taken it we've we've managed to figure out how to get out to Neptune and Uranus and Pluto mechanically because one of the problems and my wife has been <laughs> talk, talking about this just recently and oh my gosh you know these hermetic astrologers they, they can't relate to to modern astrology because modern astrology factors factors all the outer planets and they don't deal with the outer planets well we finally figured out how to do that how to deal with it but then the hermetic astrologers haven't caught up with us yet on that and they still are in that hermetic universe as far as calculating you know transits and and all sorts of astrological aspects but for working purposes, because our minds do extend and because we have all the planets within us, the old Italian Magus Facino, he said he talked about the planets within. And we have all the planets within us, so all of the spirits inhabit these various planets and spheres of the tree of life and dimensions within us and within the Hermetic universe. And that's where we have to keep them, and that's where we have to imagine them. When we say it's all in our mind, we're also saying it's all in the Hermetic universe. I know that that's kind of a headbender, but then on the other hand, that's about the best we can do. So is it uh, a matter of microcosm and macrocosm? Microcosm, yep, exactly. Microcosm, macrocosm. Thank you for 
getting that terminology out. You have to continually work with that with that principle. Hmm. So by knowing ourselves, we know the universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And for for any of our listeners that are are also Scottish Rite Masons, uh, you know, I think a a, a good point uh, to pose upon our our Scottish Rite based listeners is uh, this is stuff that is covered in the Scottish Rite degrees um, as above so below and and a number of other concepts so for hopefully for the average Scottish Rite Mason this might not be super foreign um, but uh, just you know kind of um, I'm, I'm kicking out a reminder to our Scottish Rite Masons of this should look kind of familiar <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah there's a lot of this in the 20s 28th and then our Recently, Rex Hutchins kind of pushed the 28th aside and put it all into the 27th. And yet he left an apple on the altar. I always do Brother Truth in the in the 28th degree. And so Brother Truth in the 27th degree, Rex left this apple on the altar. And then he had Brother Truth saying at the end of the altar, he at the end of the degree, he has Brother Truth declaring, we don't have any secrets. We don't present any secrets. We we don't present anything that the public isn't aware of, and on and on. We have no no secret uh, formulas or no secret knowledge. So I said all that. Then I sliced the apple sidewise, and I brought all the candidates up around the altar, and I showed them the pentagram inside the apple. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> one kid looked at me and he said. Are you Merlin? I said, Are you Merlin? No. I said, no, but I'm working on it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you kind of you yeah. kind of look like it. You got the the beard to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Well, oh, that's funny. actually, in and so you did bring up the the tree of life in 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 that last item. Uh, that was one thing I I did want to touch upon was. Uh, the Kabbalah, because it is contained in a lot of Western esoteric traditions, uh, and, and as you were talking about the, you know, the, the seven planets of the Hermetic uh, cosmology, if you will, you know, that's contained within it as well as the twelve astrological signs. And so, um, one of the questions I get, and something I, I find myself in a lot of discussions about, are the the impact in importance of the Kabbalah to the Western esoteric tradition. And, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, the Kabbalah now, we have several Kabbalahs. <laughs> we have K-A-B-B-A-L-I-H, and that's what you might call primarily Lurianic Kabbalah, you know, or, or rabbinical Kabbalah or whatever. And right. then we have Q-A-B-A-L-I-H, and that's Hermetic Kabbalah. And then we have C-A-B-A-L, <laughs> and that's her supposed to be Christian Kabbalah. There's a kind of a paradox about the Kabbalah that we don't teach in Scottish Rite, although Pike, if you if you wade through morals and dogma, you will probably pretty much find out. The Kabbalah, and this includes the K-A-B-B-A-R-L-I-H, the Kabbalah was originally Greek. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm virtually certain that the Sefer Yetzirah was originally written in Greek. The Hebrew alphabet has only 22 operative letters. I say operative because there are a lot there are more finals, but but there's right. only 22 operative letters. Okay. Now, in order to have a full Kabbalah, to get all the way around the zodiac, 
in order to have letters for all of the elements and for all of the planets and all of the signs of the zodiac and the elements, you need 24, you need a 24-letter alphabet. Okay, and is that including Earth yeah, and fact, Spirit? In fact, Gershom Shalom admits that. The Hebrew alphabet, or for doing a proper Kabbalah, the Hebrew alphabet is, is two letters short. Okay. The Greek alphabet had 24 letters. That's why I think this whole thing got started in Alexandria in the first century. And the Kabbalah was originally in Greek, probably by the Valentinian, uh, the Valentinian Magus Marcus. He probably is the one that, that, that started it. And he had a celestial analog, you know, all the signs of the zodiac and all the planets. And in fact, I, I kind of suspect that maybe Marcus originally wrote this every Azura. Because Tetragrammaton really should be, and, and with the Samaritans it was, the three mother letters. Instead of YHVH, it should be the three mother letters, and then you could add, uh, if, you, if you do it in the 22-letter alphabet, you have the three mother letters, and then you add Saturn. Okay. Because Saturn was, the, it was the, the beginning of the physical universe. But this is very controversial. The Kabbalah is very, very, very important. Of course, the, the Arabic version of it is called Abjad, or at least we call it Abjad. The Arabs don't call it that, but, <laughs> but, uh, and the Sufis don't call it that. The interesting thing about the, the Arab version of Kabbalah, which is different than our version, is that they go on sonics. They go on tonalities, on syllables and tonalities. And they have their analogies, like um, Idris Shaw, and I know, you know, I, I, I like Idris Shaw, but uh, of course the Sufis, uh, they all hate him. Uh, but Idris Shaw has, has, a, has a book called The Sufis. <laughs> and in there he explains the difference between their Kabbalah and ours. They go on sound analogy, uh, syllables and sound, whereas uh, the Hebrew Kabbalah goes on direct numeric analogs, and there is a difference. So what's interesting there, actually, and, and we don't have to belabor the point, but you know, as you were talking about the, the thought that it was the Valentinian that actually came up with it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense because there is to be a strictly Hebrew, I guess, you know, concept, there seems to be a lot of Gnosticism and Gnostic concepts that are baked into it. Uh, oh, of course. And, and Sufism is really kind of like an Islamic Gnostic sect in itself. So that I've often wondered if at some point there was this cross-pollination between uh, Gnostic Christian sects and Gnostic Jewish sects that ended up in the, the Sefer Yeser, the Tree of Life as we know it. Oh, I'm sure there was. That whole, that Alexandria had a, had a very, very large Jewish community, as you probably know, and, and, and I don't know how many of our listeners know this. One of the Ptolemies, and I forget which one, he wanted to get a Torah in Greek. He got the, the rabbis and the Jewish and the Jewish community in Alexandria to, to get together with his scholars, and they rendered they rendered the Torah into into Greek. <laughs> that was called the Septuagint. Then the Jewish community apparently lost their Torah, their their own Torah in Hebrew, their their old ones, and they had to go and borrow the Septuagint from the library and translate it back into Hebrew in order to recover their Hebrew. Well, when they did that. 
when they got to numbering the pages and the chapters and everything, they used Greek letters because the Greek had the numerical analog and the Hebrew didn't. Yeah, that was a bombshell. Before that, people thought, especially all the Elvis Levy type, you know, credulous people. Elvis Levy, and the problem with that guy is he never read Porphyry. He never, he never read uh, Iamblichus. He never, you know, <laughs> he just made this stuff up, you know. <laughs> uh, and and so many of that generation, they didn't do their homework. The Germans did their homework, but but the French didn't. The Kabbalah. Like I said, was originally Greek, so he had the number analog, and and the old Hebrew didn't. What is Kabbalah without a without a numerical analog? Right. Well, you don't have one. Uh, so something I'd like to ask about is, you know, we we've kind of talked about Kabbalah and and the other magical currents and stuff, uh, but you kind of have a, a brainchild of your own um, and a. a project that you've been working on for a very long time, which is your own magical order, uh, the Ordo Templi Astartes. Can you tell us a little bit about the OTA and uh, what led you to create it and what uh, the goal of the OTA is as an order? Um, and I guess just walk us through uh, the Ordo All Templi right. Astartes. Well, when I first started into this, you know, I had my gallbladder out and that was pretty uh, that was a pretty traumatic, but but I recovered from having my gallbladder out. I found out that uh, you know that I I could still summon these spirits of visible appearance and and I could still do this sort of thing. So I decided to go ahead and 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 create a you know if I had something like this. And as far as I could tell, I was the only individual who could do this. I decided I'd form an order and 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 uh, and I'd teach it, you know and and uh, certainly worth doing. But the first two spirits spirits that I, I called forth were uh, were Baal and Astarte, and they were Baal was number one in the Goetia, Baal, and then Astarte was number twenty six. We moved her over to the other directly opposite Baal Goetic uh, circle. Those two, they were Solomon's god and goddess, so to speak, because. The truth of the matter is Solomon was not a Hebrew. He was an Israelite, yes, certainly an Israelite, but he was a, he was a Canaanite king. He did not worship YHVH. Uh, he worshipped El, the original god of the El and the god of the Elohim. He built a temple to Astarte, and of course Baal was Astarte's consort. We started the temple of the order of the temple of Astarte. You know, based on that principle, that this was essentially a Canaanite uh, phenomenon, and Baal and Astarte, they were Goetic spirits, but they were about the same as the, as the spirits of the Book of Enoch. They were the old gods returning, coming down, and coming back as Goetic spirits. And so we'd bring them up as Goetic spirits, and then honor them as, as Canaanite gods. And so... We established the OTA, the Order of the Temple of Astarte, venerating Astarte. And because we thought that it was certainly better to venerate a goddess than to, to venerate a, you know, a storm god. The goddesses are a lot nicer, and, they're, and our Astarte was always very nice to us. And so, and very, very shortly on, under the influence of Fred Adams of Periferia, and he was one of the greatest modern American magicians, was Fred Adams. 
of the Theravarian nature religion. He was resurrecting the Eleusinian mysteries, and of course, and he had seasonal rituals, and so you know. Well, if Fred's going to have seasonal rituals, we're going to have them too. So, so I started working. I was already uh, back at school, going for my master's. Of, you know, I was the undergraduate at that point. We recreated the old Canaanite seasonal ceremonies of Baal and Astarte, and and the rest and the other Canaanite members of the Canaanite pantheon. Now, Kamadi was very, very important, but a lot of people don't realize that all the uh, that in the 1930s, the old Canaanite ceremonies and the old Canaanite religion was recovered. Uh, on the coast up north of uh, Sidon and Tyre was a, was a Canaanite city called Ugarit. In the 1930s, they dug up all these rituals, the rituals of Baal and Astarte. And, and, and so we were able to actually recreate, although... We did it in Renaissance Fair style, but kind of Chester Mystery Play style. I used Chester Mystery Plays as a sort of a style guide. We recreated the, the Canaanite ceremonies of Baal and Astarte, and we did them four times a year. And we've been doing them. We started in 1974 doing, doing a cycle of these ceremonies, and we're still doing them. And during the pandemic, we had to do them on the radio, like, like I'm talking now. <laughs> but... Otherwise, we we do them out in the yard. We have a henge and an outdoor pavilion where the gods are enthroned. And as I say, I use the Chester Mystery Plays, the British Chester Mystery Plays, as a sort of a guideline. So consequently, our our seasonals they're sort of like Ren Fair events. You know, if you if you like going seeing all these Saint George and the Dragon stuff at, at the Ren Fair, you you'll enjoy our seasonals. And so. We continue. We did. We do other spirits of the Galatia too, besides Baal and Astarte. But they're our primary. They, you know, they're they're our patron god and goddess, and so we do them most of the time. When we first got started, we were looking for an initiation. I went through all the OTO stuff, and I went through all the Golden Dawn stuff, and ah, you know, I thought, oh, gee, this is all kind of kind of Victorian and and very very sedate and pompous and whatever. And we need something exciting. We need something dramatic. I had a book and I'd had it for quite a while. In fact, I'd gotten it for, for a girlfriend of mine who was born on Halloween and thought she was a witch and she wanted a book on magic. So I got her Paul Christian's History and Practice of Magic. Back. Okay. And then I remembered that before I gave it to her, I read The Initiation of the Pyramids. This was French from back in the 1800s, you know, the, the, the 1860s. So I got another copy. You know, I'd given the first one to my girlfriend. I got another copy of it, and I found out, and, and I got the the initiation of the pyramids out of the, the history and practice of magic. And oh boy, this was this was really dramatic. This had ordeals and and it had challenges, and it was French. It was a real initiation. So we adopted that as our first initiation. And then, as time went on, I discovered that this initiation into the pyramids that Paul Christian had written in 1863, mm -hmm. that this was actually condensation of seven degrees of a German publication called the Kratter Rapoa. 
the Germans back in 1760, around the same time as the Illuminati, this bunch of German Masons, Masonic scholars, created this, what they called a seven-degree outline of the first-century Alexandrian initiation. This is what they had created, and they called it the Craterapoa. And I realized that Paul Christian's initiation of the pyramids, he jammed stuff from all seven degrees of the Craterapoa together in, in, in that thing and added a few things of his own. So we started doing all the Craterapoa. We started off and integrating our, our system into it and it into ours, and so we eventually, eventually, in the last couple of years, right before the, yeah, right before the pandemic hit, we got all seven degrees. We have all seven degrees of the Craterapoa Reformado, and we call it the Reformado because we've we've made a lot of changes and shipped a lot of things. Well, of course, Paul Christian did too, but so we now have. Uh, and we have a Holy Guardian Angel retreat, and by the way, I want to talk about that a little bit too. That this, this Holy Guardian Angel thing, because it's okay. not what a lot, a lot of people think it is. And we got all of the degrees of the Craterapoa, and we've mounted them all, and we have we have a fully Rosicrucian inner order established, an inner order. We even ended up, finally ended up. With uh, accepting the Valentinian system, and this this is really really going to whopper. And you, as an Episcopalian, you're probably not going to like this one. We have actually <laughs> actually transitioned using uh, the Nessaean document and Hippolytus and whatever. We've actually transitioned Baal and Astarte all the way up to Jesus and Mary Magdalene. In our Rosicrucian degrees, so it's and, it's Rosicrucian, but with Baal and, and Astartes as thematic elements instead. Okay. Yeah, they don't know. They see there. There was there was a, a document. There was a Gnostic sect called the Nessaeans, the Serpent sect. They believed that all of the dying gods, Isis, Osiris, uh, Addis of Adonis. Ishtar Tammuz, all of the dying gods eventually culminated in Jesus Christ. And of course, if you if you follow the Valentinian line, which we do, Jesus has to have a consort. And of course, naturally, Mary Magdalene fits the bill on that. And she's a resurrecting goddess. You know, she really did. She she was the first one to see Jesus after to see Jesus after after he was crucified. And of course, she also prepared him. You know, so she fits the bill, and, and I don't know whether you've ever read the Mary, the God, uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene's Gospel, but it's in Nagamati. So we take the Nessaean uh, sermon and extrapolate on the Valentinian scheme and move Balanastarte all the way up, like Isis and Osiris, and all the way up, finally culminating and Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the Rosicrucian. In a, that fulfills our Rosicrucian higher degrees. I know that's, that's a shocker, but uh, we've got a lot of old documents to back that up, especially Hippolytus. Huh. I'm not. Anyway, okay. I wanted to talk about this Holy Guardian Angel thing. Yeah. I'm, everybody, I'm... <laughs> everybody 
uh, all the Thelemites and, and most of the Golden Dawn people and all, they all think that the Book of Abramel and the Maj is the be-all and the end-all of the Holy Guardian Angel, okay? It isn't. You have three Holy Guardian Angels. Now, Hermes says this, Agrippa says this, and we say this. And the Pauline heart in the in the Lomegaton, mm-hmm. same book that has to go, it, it, it lays this out. And, of course, this follows Agrippa. And you have three guardian angels, and one of them is your ascendant, the angel of your ascendant, and one of them is the planet that rules your ascendant, and those are the two for your lifetime, the two of your particular lifetime. And then the third, the big one, is the one that stays with you through all your incarnations. And I'm not fooling about that. You can check this out in the her- in, in Hermetic Corpus. You can check it out in Agrippa. And you can check it out in the Pauline Art. It's all there. Why this Abramelum thing? Still trying to figure out how, how they got they got this screwed up. Because okay. what we're citing is, is the original source material. And, and this makes very good sense. Because... The two guardian angels for your ascendant and for your and for the planet that rules your ascendant, they cover your life. And then the supreme guardian angel is the one that stays with you through through all your incarnations. And of course, if you follow the labor of Herc- the labors of Hercules, we have we have at least twelve, you know, twelve incarnations that we have to go through before we can get off the wheel, so to speak, or whatever. Is the story of Hercules something that's used in, uh, I guess, OTAs? Theology, or oh yeah, yeah, we accepting the, the the labors of Hercules as part of our eschatology. Those labors indicate various incarnations that under various signs. And that's kind of a heavy concept, but it works. And Valentinians believe in reincarnation, and and frankly, to tell you the truth, Christian philosophy is primarily reincarnation. You know. Jesus said, in my house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And reincarnation is, I don't know why we ever, Christianity ever gave it up. (laughs) There's a lot of things I don't want to say, and there's probably a lot of things I shouldn't have said that I've already said. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so when you're talking about uh, Agrippa, you're talking about the the three books of occult philosophy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, the first three, not... Not the fourth, although the fourth, the fourth is more Agrippa than a lot of people think. I mean, oh. you know, they say, oh, it's pseudo-Agrippa. No, no, there's a lot of Agrippa in there. Okay. Well, and uh, so the, um, I, I guess the, the Abra, you know, Abramel and the Mage was a translation. Was it originally translated by Esso McGregor Mathers? Yeah, right. Well, they added the French the French version, and uh, there's a German version that's come out recently that is probably better. They they're not aware of the three of the, of the three angels. They're still they're still going on the one. I should, and I'm not trying to say that 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 isn't valid, but however, it's a nice idea to be able to be in contact with the the angels that are are actually assigned to you at birth. You know that, and and they're your particular angels for this lifetime. Especially if you're one of these people that doesn't believe in reincarnation. <laughs> I remember I had a I had a magical girlfriend, and uh, and boy she was she was she was a stage magician. And I took her to a lecture. Uh, Pat Zaleski was giving a lecture one time, and 
and that was going on and on about about reincarnation and whatever. So we came out of the lecture, and the girl turned around to me, and she says, why do you people believe in reincarnation? <laughs> and I said, well, look. I said, you look up there at the, at the heavens, and the heavens were up there, and look at all those stars, and look at how vast this universe is, and realize that this 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 huge universe was created by some incredibly powerful being, and that incredibly powerful being is capable of giving us multiple lifetimes if he so desires. And so therefore, I'm going to ask him for more lifetimes, because if I don't ask him for more lifetimes, he's liable to think I don't want any. And so I just say, you know, I want to go on and on. I want to, I want to finish my work. I want to go on and on and on. And why shouldn't I do that? And why shouldn't I believe it? Because if believing it gives me comfort, and if I don't believe it, I'm, I'm discomforted. So why, why shouldn't I believe it? And then she got mad at me because she didn't have an answer for that. Well, and that's true. You know, I said, there is no answer for that. Reincarnation is, is fun to believe in. Do you think it serves a purpose? Like, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, you have several different uh, spiritual traditions that, that talk about, you know, reincarnation until, uh, you know, if you go with the, with the Buddhists until you're uh, relieved, you know, released from the, the will of, uh, of suffering, right? Or if you talk about the Martinists, it's you're reincarnated until you are reintegrated back to, you know, the divine being. Um, do you see a, a purpose to the, to the reincarnation? Yeah. That's why we use the, uh, the labors of Hercules as an analog, because you, you, you have work to do. I believe in work. There's a great line yeah. in the fourth degree of the Scottish Rite about that, you know, that uh, the Masonic, Masonic duty is labor, and, and labor is itself its own reward. Um, so I kind of like that. That's right. Hey, we've got right. work That's... to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What else can we talk about? Well, so I, I was going to tell you that, that you've been very generous with your time, and, uh, and you know, we should probably, in, in the interest of, of uh of time maybe start winding down uh i did want to ask though uh for for the masons that maybe are just starting to get into esotericism uh you know and wanting to explore these topics what would your recommendation be for someone who wants to start exploring these you know we've covered a lot of ground what would you say would be the first step in starting down that path well, if you're interested in Solomon's magic, I made the statement in my book, the book of Solomon's magic. I said, nobody could teach you more about this, about Solomon's magic than I can. Mm -hmm. And I've caught, I've caught some flack about that, naturally, but that's probably the truth. So if you're interested in Solomon's magic, but I warn you that there's a lot of equipment you're going to have to, and most of it you're going to have to make. And we're going to have a workshop. We're going to be building equipment. We'll build altars. We're going to be building altars and triangles and all this kind of stuff. But not that's going to be down the road. Don't hold your breath. Don't wait. If you want to be a Solomonic magician, you're going to have, you're going to have to build a circle. You're going to be able to build an altar. You're going to have to build a uh, build a triangle. You're going to have to build a 
You're going to have to acquire scrying mirrors. You're going to have to. And right now, a good Madagascar crystal ball for doing your angels. They're up to $700 to $800 to get a decent one. And you're going to have to have that. And so this is something you really got to want to do. You really have to want to be a Solomonic. You have to want to be a wizard. You're, it's something you got to really, really want. Really want to. All right? So if you do, then the Book of Solomon's Magic, uh, and as I said, you can get it on Amazon, but I'd rather have you get it on pokerunion.com. I would say if you want to become a hermetic, you know, you want to you want to study hermetic philosophy, then get the hermetic corpus. Start at the beginning. Read it. Read the hermetic corpus. And old Hermes is, is fairly easy to read, you know. And even, even the Kabbalion. That the Kabbalion, I know it's mostly new thought, but it's it's certainly worth reading. There's nothing in the original Hermetic philosophy about vibration and and that sort of thing, but uh, that that's that's primarily new thought stuff. If you really, really, really want to get deep into this, then we have Hermetic Yoga Beyond the Middle Pillar, and we also have uh, Hermetic Yoga Beyond the Middle Pillar Volume Two, Rosicrucian Yoga, and that's uh, that's our Jesus and Mary Magdalene, you know, the, the yoga of transformation. That's the Valentinian sacred marriage. Hermetic yoga, beyond the middle pillar, volume one and volume two. I would, uh, if you really, it, if that is, if you really, really want to get get into this. <laughs> and of course, we have uh, we have the Hermetic Hour on Blog Talk Radio. The Hermetic Hour, we do that every Thursday at 8 o'clock Pacific time. We come on. So you might want to check that out. And check out the archives on Blog Talk Radio, The Hermetic Hour, and, and listen to some of those early shows, and you and we can teach you a lot about this sort of thing. Also, too, you can check out, there's a video that goes along with the Book of Solomon's Magic, and that's available from several sources. It's called The Magic of Solomon. Okay. That's a video, and primarily by myself. And that shows you how to do it, and that shows scenes inside our temple. Is there anything else that I can leave you with? Oh, I, I think my list of questions is exhausted at this point. <laughs> we have covered yeah. a lot, and a, actually a lot more than I expected to. So. I'm just really glad that we were able to to sit down and have this conversation with you and and, and get to know you and and learn more about the Western esoteric tradition. So I, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Well, let's keep in touch, Gabriel. We're available, you know, most of the time. And give me a call anytime, or you know, my my email kingsword@aol.com, and uh, and let's keep in touch and. And we'll uh, hopefully we can do this again, and maybe maybe I can have you have you on the Hermetic Hour sometime if you get if if you if you'd like to share your activities. Oh, that'd be pretty fun. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to sign off and leave you with my regular sign off. Good magic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, folks. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been my, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.